Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. As you know, as we just heard, Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, is when we blow the shofar, and we take stock of our life, and we look over our past year, and we ask the Lord to inscribe our names in the Book of Life, in the Sefer Chaim, uh, inscribe our names for, for a good year, a uh, good year to come, and most importantly, mo- much more importantly, to inscribe our names uh, for all eternity uh, in the Lamb's Book of Life, uh, Messiah's Book of Life. So I'd like us to talk today, tonight, uh, about sin and repentance as we ask the Lord to cleanse us in His sight uh, by the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Yeshua. And since Rosh Hashanah in Jewish tradition also marks the creation of the world, it's fitting that we go back tonight uh, to the very beginning, to uh, Sefer Bereshit, to the book of Genesis, uh, and to Gani Dead and the Garden of Eden, and the fall of man in our text. So turn with me to uh, Bereshit, the Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read uh, the whole chapter, Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than, all, than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, you must not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, lest you die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the tree, uh, the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye uh, and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife They heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman who you put here with me. She gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you'll eat the dust of the earth all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and hers. He'll crush your head, and you'll strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I'll make your pains in childbearing uh, very severe. With pain you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he'll rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. Because of you, through painful toil, you'll eat of it all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistles for you, 
and, and you'll eat the plants of the field. But the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you'll return. Adam named his wife Chava, Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. Lord God made garments of skins for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man now has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. After he drove them out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden a cherubim, the cherubim, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, this very famous account of the fall of Adam and Eve, it shows us the origins of sin. According to Jewish tradition, by the way, this all occurred during the High Holy Days of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Uh, the Bible is God's account telling us that what was put in the overhead, uh, what's wrong with the human race, what God's going to do about it, what he has done about it, and how history is going to end, how it's all going to turn out. It's a single story. Much of it focuses on Israel and the Jewish people. But here in the very beginning, before there were any Jewish people, we see the origin of what's wrong with the human race, why we are so prone to selfishness, and violence, wars, and atrocities, corruption, all the time. C.E.M. Joad was a British philosopher, uh, an atheist. He was a member of the British... Uh, wait, wait a minute on the overhead, I'll tell you when. Uh, he was a member of the British intellectual elite called, known as the Brain Trust, who lived in the first half of the 20th century. He was an atheist... Uh, but he became a, a believer, a Yeshua follower, uh, at the end of his life. And at the end, at the, at late in his life, he wrote a book called The Recovery of Belief. And in this book, uh, he said a very fascinating, fascinating thing that relates to our passage here in Genesis 3. And we'll put this on the overhead. And he said this. It was because we rejected the doctrine of original sin that we on the left, he was a socialist, a leftist, we on the left were always disillusioned by the behavior of both the people and the nations and the politicians and by the recurrent fact of war. Do you hear that? As a leftist, he thought the problem was with the capitalists, not the common people, not the workers. Why? Because he had rejected the doctrine of original sin. He bought into this naive idealism of what Rousseau said about the goodness and the nobility of man in his natural state, apart from the corruption of society. And almost all of the, by the way, all of the European intellectuals, the elite knowledge classes, uh, and the intelligentsia in the 19th century had bought into this lie uh, that although we humans, yeah, we have problems, these problems are not they believed, are not hardwired into us, but they're simply due to a lack of education and to poverty and to bad circumstances and upbringing, and we can make changes and reforms, and we can fix all of that. But after two world wars, Job realized at the end of his life that because he did not believe in Genesis 3, he did not believe in the fall of man and, and the doctrine of, of original sin, because he did not believe in what the Bible said, 
about the universality and the depth of sin in the human heart, that he based his whole life on a faulty view of human nature. And by doing so, with all of his intellectual influence, he'd helped to set in motion all sorts of social policies that he now admits don't work. Because he did not not have the Bible to understand human nature, he wasn't able to navigate life as it really was. So let's see what the Bible has to say about sin as we take stock of our own lives, this era of Rosh Hashanah. And we learn four things here from this passage. We learn, number one, the heart of sin. Secondly, the breadth of sin. Third, the depth of sin. And finally, the end of sin. So the heart of sin, the breadth and the depth of sin, and the end of sin. So number one, the heart of sin. What is sin? What's, a, what's the definition of sin? You know, it's really hard to boil it down, but one definition is this. We'll put it on the overhead. One definition is, is sin is putting yourself in the place of God. Taking upon yourself the prerogatives and the rights that only God has. But tonight, I want us to look at another perspective of sin as well. And we see right away, we see it right here in our text. Uh, as soon as Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit, and sin has, sin has come into their life, we're immediately seeing the results of this. So when God says, Genesis 3, verse 11, have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? Immediately, Adam says, the woman did it. <laughs> Genesis three thirteen. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And immediately, what does she say? Eve says, the serpent did it. So Adam says, she made me do it. Send her to hell. Give me another wife. Adam's talking to the holy God of the universe. Adam, what have you got to say for yourself? Take her. (laughs) And here we see the essence of sin. Sin is the willingness to throw anybody else under the bus in order to justify yourself. Sin is justifying yourself at the expense of other people, to feel superior to other people. In order to have a good self-image, I have to feel superior to others. Uh, I have to expose other people. I have to exploit other people. Sin is saying, your life for, my, uh, for mine. Your life to enhance mine. Not my life to enhance yours. The latter is servanthood. Uh, uh, but, but your life to enhance mine is self-centeredness. Uh, I'll suck you dry for my benefit. I'll disadvantage you so that I can advantage and feel good about myself, so that I can justify myself, so that I can have significance and the security that I want. Philip Roth uh, wrote a novel called The Human Stain, uh, and which was, his, by the way, his metaphor for evil. Uh, the novel is about a man who starts to do well in life, and everybody feels they have to bring him down. They have to find something wrong with him. They've got to ruin his career. And one of the characters in the novel, he talks about what he calls the human stain, which is the proneness to evil in the heart, which is much deeper than mere outward behavior. Uh, It's this need to pull people down, uh, this need to justify yourself at the expense of others. Oh, put this in the overhead in a minute, please. Thank you. Uh, This need to feel better than, than other people. I feel good about myself if I can find something bad in you. I feel competent if I can point to your incompetence. 
And at one point, one of the characters says this about the human stain in the heart, the overhead. He says, it's in everyone, indwelling, inherent, defiant, defining. The stain that precedes your acts of disobedience. It encompasses disobedience. Uh, It perplexes all explanation and understanding. It's why all talk of cleansing your heart is a joke. The fantasy of purity is appalling. For what is the quest of purity but more impurity itself? The stain is inescapable. Now, what does Philip Roth mean by all this? He says, if you actually try to purify yourself, that just brings more impurity. And here's why. The stain is self-righteousness. The stain is, I justify myself by pulling you down. I make myself superior to you. I feel better than you. And if that's the case, then to try to purify yourself from the stain only makes you more stained. Because you say, look, I'm pure. You're not. Here's another example. C.S. Lewis wrote a little satirical piece called Screwtape Proposes a Toast. Screwtape is a devil, a senior devil, who is at a dinner for a college of junior devils who are getting ready to go out and tempt human beings and the human race to make life horrible for them. So Screwtape suggests a particular method for making people's lives miserable uh, and for making the world a horrible place. And what he suggests is that there's a particular feeling that human beings have. And what you want to do, if you're a devil, is you want to turn the gas up on that feeling. Whatever else you do, make sure you enhance this particular feeling. Because this is the feeling that will really ruin their lives. Then Screwtape says this, and he put it on the overhead. He says, the feeling I'm talking about is that which prompts a person to say, I'm as good as you. That's the essence of sin. That's how hell operates. That's what made the devil the devil. I'm as good as you. That's what Satan started to say about God. That's then it was downhill for the universe from there. And then Screwtape goes on to say this. He says, anyone who says, I'm as good as you, doesn't believe it. No. Uh, No one says, I'm as good as you, if you believe it. You wouldn't say it if you did. The St. Bernard doesn't say to the toy poodle, I'm as good as you. (laughs) I'm as good as you is a useful means for the destruction of whole societies. But it has a far deeper value as a state of mind which necessarily excludes, excludes humility, charity, contentment, all the pleasures of gratitude and admiration, and turns a human being away from every road that might finally lead him to heaven. The impulse that says, I'm as good as you. I don't like you getting ahead of me. That impulse that says, I'm better than you. That's how I know I'm okay. That impulse is sin. And it's the root of jealousy and envy, class hatred, murder, racism, conflicts. This is a picture of the heart of sin. That's point number one. The first thing we learn from this passage, uh, that Satan tried to get Eve to question God's motives uh, and, 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 and forbid, why did he forbid this tree? He's trying to impugn God's character. 
so that Eve would assign some evil motive to God. God's trying to keep me down. He's jealous of me becoming like him, knowing good and evil. And that's why he really forbade me from eating that fruit. But I'm as good as him, so I can eat it if I want. That's the heart of sin. And the second thing we learn here is the breath of sin. What the, what the man does, so does the woman. The man and the woman, they're both equally ashamed. They're both filled with blame shifting, both trying to justify their sin. Uh, both are equally banished from the garden, from God's presence. Both Adam and Eve have sinned. And this is crucial. The biblical doctrine of, the, of original sin is that we are hardwired for selfishness, for cruelty. It's not just that we have had bad examples or, or bad upbringing or a bad environment. No, we are hardwired for it. And the biblical doctrine of, of original sin says that we are all hardwired for it. All of us, across cultures, across races, across classes, across genders, everybody. That's what the Bible says. Look at Romans 3, verse 10. It's quoting here, by the way, from the Psalms and Ecclesiastes and Isaiah and the Hebrew Scriptures. Paul says here, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace, they do not know. There is no yirat There is no fear of the Lord before their eyes. This understanding of the universality and the breath of sin, it is so crucial Remember what C.E.M. Jode said? We'll put it on the overhead again. He said, because we on the left denied the doctrine of original sin, we thought the problems in life, what's really wrong with the world, were located in the capitalists. The problem was located in the elites, not in the common people. But life showed him that no, that's wrong. Sin is everywhere. And he eventually realized that the mistake he made as a member of the left was that because he did not believe in the doctrine of original sin, he demonized a certain group of people and placed all the problems there. But the doctrine of original sin is that it is in all of us equally. On the other hand, there are some very traditional people who try to say the opposite of what he had said, uh, that the real problem is with the hoi polloi, you know, the unwashed masses, uh, with the commoners, uh, and along these lines, there's a very famous letter that's come down to us today, written by the Duchess of Buckingham to the Countess of Huntington uh, in England. The Countess of Huntington had become converted, had become born again, a Yeshua follower under the preaching of George Whitfield uh, in the 18th century, 1700s uh, in Britain. And she tried to evangelize her upper-class aristocratic colleagues. So she would send them sermons by George Whitfield to her friends and invite them to come and hear him preach. One of her aristocratic peers, the Duchess of Buckingham, after having been invited to come and, and to hear George Whitfield, sent her back a very icy note, <laughs> declining. And this is what she said on the overhead here. I thank your ladyship 
where the doctrines are most repulsive and strongly tinctured of impertinence and disrespect towards their superiors in perpetually endeavoring to level all ranks and do away with all distinctions. It's monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches who crawl upon the earth. And it's highly offensive and insulting. So I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiments so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. (laughs) In a way, the Duchess of Buckingham is right. The doctrine of original sin levels people. The doctrine of original sin makes it impossible for those on the left to say, it shows elites up there, not, not, not the common people who are the problem. And it makes it equally impossible for those on the right to say, it's you unwashed masses, you lower classes, you criminal elements, you're the problem, not us, not us virtuous people who have high rank and good breeding. So ironically, the Duchess of Buckingham, she's right. You know why? Because the doctrine of original sin creates a radical democracy of sinners. If you believe in original sin, then at bottom, nobody is better than anyone else. You cannot look your nose down at a criminal or a drug dealer and say, ah, there's a sinner, not me. Because the doctrine of original sin says says the, the same seeds of that behavior is in your heart. Now, maybe those seeds did not sprout in you because you weren't in the same kind of environment uh, as the convicted criminal was. But the fact is, before God, you are no better. We're all sinners. And therefore, all in need of God's grace through Yeshua. The Duchess of Buckingham was right. This levels everybody. You see that I have a heart as sinful as the common wretches who crawl upon the earth. That's exactly what the Bible says from Genesis 3 on. The doctrine of original sin absolutely destroys self-righteousness. And that's why, by the way, G.K. Chesterton, he could write this. He says on the overhead, he says, Christianity teaches an unattractive idea, original sin. But when we wait for the results of this doctrine of original sin, we find there our pathos and brotherhood and the thunder of laughter and pity. And that only with original sin can we at once pity the beggar and distrust the king. Now, what does he mean by brotherhood? What he means is it's possible for It is possible, by the way, for society that claims to be Christian to be racist. But if it is, it is racist in spite of the doctrine of original sin, not because of it. Because it's not grasping what the doctrine says. And what the doctrine of original sin says is that humanity is a radical democracy. We're all brothers and sisters in sin. We are all under judgment. We all have no hope except for the grace of God in the Messiah Yeshua. And that's the reason why, if you really grasp the doctrine of original sin, it creates a solidarity between you and every other person. Even the most wretched person you may see wandering the streets of downtown Dallas and living under the bridges and the highway expresses, overpasses. When the reality of who we all are comes into your heart, you can no longer say, 
Ooh, who are these people? Remember a few years back, uh, infamous Bernie Madoff, uh, the Ponzi scheme in which he built, uh, built uh, many, many people out of millions and millions of dollars, including charities and, and nonprofit organizations. And a number of, of, of pundits and commentators, they were discussing the after, in the aftermath what it all meant. And one person said this, look, let's not call this sin. Let's not call this wrongdoing. This is just the way people are. People are going to do this. They're going to be cheat. They're going to cheat. They're going to lie. They're going to steal. People do this. That's just the way they are. And this is, and this, by the way, and this is why we need more government, more government regulation. Our only hope is more government oversight and regulation and control. But doesn't he realize the government is people? The government is fallible, sinful people. Same as you and I but only with more power, with the power of the state behind them, which makes it even worse. So we're all the same. And that's point number two, the breath of sin. Now in this text, Genesis 3, we learn not only about the heart of sin, number one, and number two, the breath of sin, but also through the depth of sin. Here's what I mean. We human beings were um, radically relational. Uh, That's what we're made for. Uh, we see this in Genesis 1 and 2, where Adam laments he's got no companion, right, no mate. Uh, God creates Eve, forms from, from Adam's side. So Genesis 1 and 2, it tells us we are created in the image of God. So we reflect his character we're, and, and we, we relate to him. And just as God is relational within himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, we're made to be relational. We are lonely without other human beings. The Lord says it's not good for man to be alone. We're relational beings. We live for relationship. But what we see in Genesis 3 is every single relationship being destroyed by sin. Sin is like a malignant tumor eating away at any ability to conduct any kind of relationship. Sin destroys our ability to have a relationship with God, uh, with ourselves, uh, with other people. And even with nature and the world around us. So number one, uh, we see sin destroys our relationship with God. In Genesis 3, uh, 3 uh, verse 8, we're told that God comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And it's, and it's interesting, that they, by the way, that God is walking with them as if he has a human body that can walk. And then kind of hinting, perhaps, at this, the pre-incarnate manifestation of Messiah Yeshua is, is walking with them in the garden. But secondly, we're told that, uh, by the way, that, you know, in the scripture that David walked with Jonathan, uh, Abraham walked with Lot. So to, to walk with someone biblically means a lot more than just physically walking together. The word walking in Hebrew is an idiom that means friendship, relationship. So the fact that God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day means he was coming in wanting friendship, seeking relationship, and what did we do? We hid from him. Sin is running from God who wants a relationship with us. Well, why don't we want a relationship with the Lord? Because sin now means that our life is about power, about getting power over others. Um, it says, I'll have a relationship with you as long as it doesn't uh, get, in, get in the way of me meeting my needs. As long as it doesn't get in the way of my happiness and my fulfillment. It's always your life to enhance mine. I'm happy to have a relationship with you, 
as long as it enhances me, as long as it builds me up, as long as it makes me feel good. What we don't like uh, is servanthood. Uh, because we're, we, like, we like consumer relationships. We like to say, as long as the cost-benefit analysis is working well, I'm getting as much or more from you as you're getting from me, uh, we're fine. But we don't like covenants. Because in a covenant relationship, I am committed to you no matter what. I'm committed to faithfully serving you, whether I'm getting anything out of it or not. We hate that. Covenant goes against the grain of the sinful, selfish heart. Sin is keeping control and having power. Uh, And there's no way for a finite being, man, to walk with an infinite being, God, without losing control. And so we won't have it. We run from God. And, 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 And we hide from God. We rebel against God. We defy him and we reject him. Now, it's true that most people, they do say, if you ask them, yeah, I believe in God. They'll say that. Most people in the world pray. Most people don't actually, but most people don't actually have the real God. Because most people have a God that they can pray to when they want to. And it doesn't really demand the loss of control of your life. Their God doesn't demand that you, they change their life. So in reality, we're running from God. We're hiding from ourselves this fact. We're deceiving ourselves by believing in a God who's merely a construct of our mind. A God who is not holy, who's not infinite or sovereign. So number one, sins destroyed our relationship with God. Number two, as a result, our relationship with, even with ourselves uh, has been destroyed as well. We see, this, we see this when Adam says to the Lord, I hid from you because I was ashamed, because I was naked. Now, in the Bible, just like walking is actually a Hebrew idiom for something bigger, uh, a relationship, uh, nakedness is also an idiom for something bigger, a sense of guilt. There's something wrong with me, a sense of shame. Uh, I need to, to prove myself. I need to, I, I need to cover. Uh, I need to keep people from seeing who I really am because they'll reject me. Nakedness, it's also a psychological dislocation, a lack of ease with who I am. Uh, And when our relationship with God uh, was severed, our relationship with ourself was also severed. Which is is to say, we don't want to admit what's really wrong with us. We don't want to admit the worst about ourselves. The one thing we don't want to believe is that we are utterly dependent on God. You want to think we only need God occasionally, or maybe not at all. But deep down in our heart of hearts, we know we're utterly dependent upon God. And therefore, we're in denial of who we really are. And that's where the shame comes from. Uh, that's where the guilt comes from. That's where the lack of ease and being able to, to admit who we are comes from. So number one, our relationship with God is destroyed. Number two, our relationship with ourselves is destroyed. Number three, our relationship with each other is destroyed. We see this when Adam uh, throws Eve under the bus, right? God asked them, look at Genesis 3.11. God asked Adam, have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? Adam says, the woman that you put here, by the way, <laughs> with, with me, uh, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. 
Adam blames Eve. Notice he also blames God. Right? The woman that you put here, she did this. Note also Adam and Eve, they sow fig leaves for themselves to cover their nakedness. As soon as sin enters the world, the first instinct is to cover up. To cover up from each other. No more transparent relationship. We cannot bear to have other people really know who we are. We have to control what other people see about us. Because that's how we maintain power and control. And because our relationships are now power relationships, not love and service relationships, our relationships with each other are all messed up. Individually, we have superficial relationships and exploitive relationships. Uh, Corporately, the races don't get along with each other. The genders don't get along with each other. The ethnic groups don't get along with each other. Because our relationship with God is messed up. Our relationship with ourself is messed up. And our relationships with each other are messed up. And then lastly, fourthly, even our relationship with nature itself is messed up. with, With our physical environment. Genesis 3.17, to Adam the Lord said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, which I commanded you not to eat from, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. For the sweat of your brow you'll eat your food until you return to the ground. The earth is no longer our friend. There's now a disconnect, a disharmony, And a clash between man and his physical environment. Now we age. Now we get sick. Uh, There's natural disasters. Uh, uh, And now we die. We came from dust, and to dust we return. Genesis 3.19. By the sweat of your brow you eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you'll return. Uh, Irma Bombeck was a humor columnist for newspapers way back when I was growing up in the dark ages. And in one of her columns, she wrote this. We'll put this on the overhead. She wrote, my life is dominated by dirt. At the end of, at this end of the house, there's dirt. Dirt in the bathroom, dirt in the kitchen, dirt in the rugs, dirt everywhere. So I work and work and work to get rid of the dirt. And by the time I get to the other end of the house, the first end of the house is dirty again. It never ends. And in the end, after all these years of struggling against dirt, struggling against dirt, what's my reward? Six feet of dirt. (laughs) Which is pretty close to what God says here in Genesis 3. (laughs) From dust you were taken until dust you're going to return. Because in the end, the dust wins. (laughs) Every one of our relationships has been decimated by sin. Now, what's God going to do about it? You know, even though the Bible was written over 1,500 years by 40, 50 different authors, the Holy Spirit is really the author behind every author. And in that sense, the Bible is a single book with a single author. And this author, the Holy Spirit, he's an incredibly good storyteller. Because what we have here in the midst of this disaster is the, uh, is the most enigmatic, intrig- intriguing foreshadow of the solution to come. What is, what is this foreshadowing? Uh, what's God going to do uh, um, about this in the future? 
We'll first look at the, the mercy of God's heart. He doesn't come in to smite them dead, right? Instead, he tenderly he tries to draw them out. He says, where are you, Adam? What have you done? Have you done what I asked you not to do? What's God trying to do with all these questions? He obviously does not need new information, right? He knows the information. He's not seeking truth and illumination for himself. So the only reason he's asking these questions is because he's trying to give truth and illumination to them. He's treating them as adults. Uh, He's not treating them as objects or as animals or even as children. He's doing what people in, in AA call an intervention, He's trying to get them to tell him what he knows and and what they should know. He's trying to get them to confront their sin and to own it. Just like the first step of getting freed from alcoholism is to admit you're an alcoholic. The first step for Adam and Eve's restoration is for them to admit their sin, to own it. So we see God here counseling them. He's Peleoates. He's the wonderful counselor. He's seeking them in love. He's asking them questions instead of telling them what they've done wrong. And note that while he asked these questions to Adam and Eve, he does not ask any questions to the serpent, to Satan. You know what that means? God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. God holds out hope for evildoers, but he will not compromise with evil. So first we see the Lord makes a distinction between the evildoers and the evil. He seeks in love to change people's hearts. That's the first thing we see, the mercy of his heart. The second thing we see is the mercy of his hand. Uh, The second thing the Lord does, he makes garments for them, right? They've tried to cover themselves, uh, cover their sin with mere fig leaves. But God says, no, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So he makes garments of animals to cover them. Adam and Eve need these garments to put this on the overhead. They need these garments of skins of animals, number one, psychologically, uh, for their privacy. Number two, physically, uh, for protection uh, in what's now a hostile environment. Uh, And number three, spiritually, they need to be covered. Again, that's why God made these garments from animal skins. God had to slay these animals, the very first death ever in the Garden of Eden, to get their skins This is a clear hint, a pointer to the sacrificial system that's formally enacted under Moses. Uh, But we see it here all the way back in in Genesis. Uh, We see see it in in Cain and Abel already in place, with with Abel bringing a sacrifice with the flocks of his herd. So, for the Torah tells us, Leviticus 17.11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves upon the altar. It's the blood that makes atonement for one's soul. And, of course, the blood sacrifices point to the final atonement in the death and resurrection of Messiah Yeshua. Speaking of Messiah, Isaiah 53, 8 says, For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. It was the Lord's will to, to, to crush him, uh, to cause him to suffer, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. So when God clothes Adam and Eve, do you know what he's saying? He's saying, someday I'm going to bring salvation to the world. Uh, uh, but, but my salvation, it's holistic. Uh, you Most of all, you need forgiveness. 
But you also need shelter from the storm. Uh, and therefore, we as Yeshua followers who seek to spread God's salvation to the entire world, we've got to deal with all the results of sin, right? Uh, physical, mental, emotional, social, spiritual. And that's why we're called. We're called both to preach the gospel and to feed and to clothe our brethren. James one twenty seven. True religion that God our Father accepts uh, as pure and faultless is to look after the orphan and the widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the sins of the world. Listen to what one biblical commentator, Derek Kidner, says about this passage, Genesis 3. He says this, The coats of skin are the forerunners of the welfare, both spiritual and physical, which, makes, which man's sin makes necessary. So we see God's heart of mercy and his hand of mercy. Now, what's he going to do? And we see here the, the foreshadowing of the coming of the Messiah. He says to the serpent, Genesis 3.15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and hers. He'll crush her head. You'll strike his heel. So what's the picture here? Imagine a family. Suddenly, into the midst of them comes a slithering snake. As fast as he can go. And snakes can be very fast. Here comes this venomous snake, this deadly snake, ready to attack. Coming right at them. And the father, he goes after the snake. He begins to stomp on it with all his might and stomp on it. And then finally, he crushes its head. Saves his family. But in the process, the snake bites him in the heel. And he dies, saving his family. That's the picture. And what God is saying... And this is amazing when you realize the snake represents Satan. God is saying, one of the descendants of Adam and Eve, the one who's the seed of the woman, which hints at the virgin birth because women don't have seed, one of, one of the descendants of Adam and Eve is going to destroy sin and death itself. But in the process, receive a fatal wound. A human descendant of Eve, the seed of the woman, is one day going to crush Satan under his feet. And destroy sin and death itself. Put an end to sin. But in the process, lose his life. Atone for our sin by his sacrifice death. So who is this? Obviously, this description fits only, only one person. Yeshua, the Messiah. Uh, the second Adam uh, said to redeem us from the sin of the first Adam. You see, the first Adam, he should have, he should have done something like this. Not just stand there passively and let the serpent destroy his family. The first Adam should have destroyed the serpent, the, the embodiment of Satan. But the second Adam, Yeshua the Messiah, did. His death on the cross atoned for our sins if we repent and trust in him. And he'll, completely, and he'll complete the destruction of Satan and evil when he returns on our future Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur with a chauffeur blast. Heralding his return. Romans 4, Paul says that in the Messiah, your sins are covered. Look at Romans 4, 7. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed are those whose sins the Lord will not count against them. Now, generally, we don't like cover-ups. You know, when you sweep things under the rug. Uh, But this is not what's happening here. Uh, What we're told here in Genesis 3 is that when... when, uh, He goes to the cross and rises again. Messiah is going to deal with your sin once and for all. Your sins can be covered, pardoned, removed, forgiven. 
How? Look at the very last part of our chapter, Genesis 3.24. After the Lord drove Adam and Eve out of the garden, he placed on the east of the garden, Cherubim, uh, the cherubim, with a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life, the Etzchayim, the tree of life. There's a sword now placed at the entrance of Eden. And therefore, no one can get back to Eden. No one can get back to God's presence at all into this garden. No one can get to the tree of life. No one can, can get to heaven. Unless you go under the sword. What does the sword represent? The wages of sin. The justice of God. Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. No one can get back into paradise unless they go under the sword. Isaiah 53 verse 8 tells us of of this suffering servant, the Messiah, that he was cut off from the land of the living. He went under the sword. He was cut off. Why? For the transgression of my people, he was punished. Yeshua went under the sword. He opened a new and living way back into God's presence. He went first and the sword slew him. He covered our sins for all who who follow him. What it means to be a Yeshua follower is not to try really hard to live a good life. To be a Yeshua follower is to repent and trust in Yeshua and cry out to the Lord, Father, cover my sins because of what Yeshua has done. What he's done objectively to cover my sins because of what you have done, Yeshua, but also subjectively as well to cover them by dealing with the sin inside my heart. Cleanse me, Lord. Transform me from the inside out. I confess I do not love you, Lord, or love others the way you command. I live for myself. I'm trying to keep control, trying to be my own Savior and Lord. Lord, let the love of what Yeshua has done for me so flood my heart that I will love you, Lord, with all my heart and my mind and my soul and my strength and serve others with your sacrificial servant love. Most of us working so hard for acclaim and for accreditation, for getting into the right school, getting the right job, uh, the great career, success, money, fame, beauty, peer approval, power, achievements, uh, a great body, attractiveness, romance. But do you know what all these things are? They're fig leaves. Fig leaves. They're ways you're trying to deal with your nakedness and your shame and your sense that there's something wrong with you. But know today, on this era of Rosh Hashanah, Yeshua the Messiah has covered your fig leaves and covered you with his love. Accept what he's done for you. Surrender your life wholly and completely to him. Ask God to cover you with his righteousness, the righteousness of Messiah Yeshua. Ask the Lord to receive you, not based on your merit, but because of what Yeshua has done. Ask the Spirit of Messiah, the Holy Spirit, to fill you and to immerse you and to empower you. And that will not only cover your sins objectively, but also subjectively change and transform your heart into his image. So on this era of Rosh Hashanah, I urge you to turn from your sin. 
to turn from yourself and to turn to Yeshua in faith. Amen. Let's stand and pray. I want the music team to come on up. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's pray together. Lord, in this era of Rosh Hashanah day, when you open in heaven your books of judgment, uh, Lord, we openly confess to you our sin. We confess this past year, uh, we put ourselves in your place. We've uh, assumed the rights and prerogatives that, that only you have. Uh, we've thrown others under the bus in order to shift blame, in order to justify ourselves. We put ourselves first. We put others a distant second. We put you last. We self-righteously, we look at others and we say, I'm as good as you. When the truth is, we have no righteousness in ourselves. So Yeshua, we come to you tonight as beggars, knowing our guilt, our sin ever before us, and we confess our helplessness. We confess that our self-righteousness is like filthy rags in your sight and cannot save us. And so we plead your blood, Yeshua, for your blood is the only thing that can wash out that damn spot and cleanse us. And so we call upon your mercy and your grace. We put our trust wholly, Lord, uh, fully in you, solely in you. Lord, we've tried running from you. We've tried hiding from you. We've tried covering our sin with our own fig leaves, trying to be our own Lord and Savior. But instead, Lord, we run to you. We hide in your arms. Uh, Have your wings, your talit, Lord, be our covering. We commit, Lord, to you tonight, Lord Yeshua, to, to our covenant relationship with you. We acknowledge our total dependence on you, Yeshua. Without you, we're nothing. We thank you, Lord. You've covered us, not just in animal skins like Adam and Eve, but with the priceless blood of Yeshua, your son. Thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice, Lord Yeshua, for your atonement, for your, for your, full, full, for your self-substitution for me. You went under the sword so that I could have the tree of life. Hallelujah. So, Lord, tonight we, we love you, we praise you, we worship you, and we pray all of this in your holy name. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you.